one of the themes running through the week, practice and the teachings, has been this sort of nested threefold model of meeting experience, a threefold way of directing or exploring or opening up attention. And at the end of the morning instructions, I referred to that same basic kind of threefold model that would be variously referred to as Vitaka, Vichara, Viveka, directive attention, exploratory attention, wide open attention, body field, chitta field, uh, unified field, etc. And I added these another way of exploring that sort of same progression this morning, which I called contact, curiosity, and care. And um, I thought I'd explore those terms a little bit more this evening in a way that's <coughs> certainly that uh, orients towards meditation practice, but that equally actually orients towards any every moment of life. There's no moment of life, there's no situation, there's no relationship uh, that can't benefit, that doesn't benefit from us being a bit more contactful, a bit more curious, a bit more caring. And on the one hand we can see these, these three aspects as something we can cultivate, and I'll try to point to that as I explore the terms. But even while we might think of them in terms of a practice, something to cultivate, it's equally helpful and important, I would say, to recognize them as actually inherent qualities of awareness. As we get more familiar with what it is to abide as awareness or in awareness, to be present in the midst of experience, we start to really taste the way in which awareness is inherently contactful. It's just that interpenetration of knowing with what's being known, awareness and experience. To be present is to just let whatever arises be met, be received, be contacted. So on the one hand we can talk about uh, cultivating contactfulness, embodied presence. On the other hand there's a way in which that's always being kind of offered to us. There's a way in which the very fact of being here, being human, being conscious, is a contactful realm. And so with curiosity, right, we can cultivate being curious. And yet, to be, you know, presence has curiosity as an innate characteristic. And we start to, the closer we get to experience, the more intimate we are with what's happening, the more, ah. In Buddha's language, it's onward leading, or inward leading. Intimacy wants more intimacy. Knowing wants more knowing. And love wants more love. 
Wisdom wants more wisdom. It's like, oh. And kind of recognize the possibility for more depth, more exploration. And similarly with care, right? Awareness is inherently caring. There's this way in which to let experience in is to embrace it, allow it, love it. And so on the one hand, we have a kind of language of cultivation and a practice of cultivation, a mode of cultivation of these qualities. And on the other hand, we're simultaneously feeling for the way in which they actually don't need to be cultivated. Feeling for the way in which they're already here, they're already our home, they're available to be rested into. So it's like we also we can cultivate them and we can just give ourselves up into the contactful, curious, caring nature of being here in the midst of life, being confronted with the endless mystery of the fact that there's experience here and that we can meet it, explore it, allow it. Embodied presence, thread we've been leading with and been the foundation of our practice all week. And sometimes that can feel very far away and feel like our default is to be kind of off in disembodied realms. Um, It's easy to start sort of measuring one's practice, almost like percentages. So what, what percentage... This week, have you been? <laughs> Let's not go there. <laughs> but actually, what's more, much more important than the percentage, it's like on the one hand, we, we, we practice with the intention of staying, settling, landing. But on the other hand, we, we learn, hopefully, to be endlessly forgiving of the way in which we don't stay. Like I say, the nature of mind is to move. Right? It's more important than the amount of time one's present is the intention to just to keep turning back in that direction, right? coming back towards contactfulness. And so that that becomes the habit. Right? I think I said the other day, whatever you feed, that's what grows. You feed, if you just feed not unconsciously, we're often feeding the habit of disembodying, abstractifying, going off. You start to feed that habit, the habit of grounding, returning, contactfuling, no, contacting, <laughs> then that grows. And you know that, that may not be very obvious to us for a little while, but the whole fulcrum of our practice can shift. With a certain steadiness and sincerity and time, it can become normal to be here. Uh, Easeful to be here. So much so that when we start to go, get disembodied and abstracted, it starts to feel very quickly like, what's going on? Something weird and unnecessary going, oh yeah, I'm out there fussing somewhere. Why would I do that? 
like I say, no situation, no, no relationship that can't benefit from us being a bit more contactful. And actually, particularly, that sense of what you feed grows, that's especially true, actually, in difficult circumstances. Your habits get stronger in difficult circumstances. Right? If a habit is to be quite anxious, then when there's difficult circumstances, the anxiety goes up. Right? If your tendency is to be quite angry, then when things get difficult, the anger comes up. So as you feed the habit of being more contactful, right, when things get difficult, you get more contactful. And you're feeding the habit of presence, when things get difficult, you get more present. And maybe you had that experience. It's actually, to a certain extent, it functions in a rather mysterious way, but for a to a certain extent, that is a, seems to be a survival mechanism that actually does that to us. And the way people talk about sometimes in car accidents or not just difficult circumstances, but you know, really you know, life-threatening circumstances, one sometimes becomes very present, even without practice. Right? The sense of things slowing down, of being hyper-aware of what's happening, of feeling like one has a lot of time. Right? It's like somehow our deep intelligence keeps that in its back pocket. Right? Or when it's really, really needed. And often, that's a, that's a, those life-threatening circumstances become life-changing circumstances. <coughs> For people, as one recognizes, oh, there's a way of actually being in the midst of experience. And it doesn't have to be those kinds of extreme experiences. That can be way more spacious, fluid. Like one can be way more awake conscious. That's another feature, actually, of the more contactful we are, the more things kind of slow down, the more time opens up. We mostly have a kind of fractious, fractious relationship with time. And for much of us, we talk a lot about the modern world or something like that, feeling time pressured. A lot of that, that's the, the, the part of our fractious relationship with time that gets the most uh, air time. Right? I'm pressured by time, I don't have enough time, I'm so busy. We say it like it's a, a problem, though actually a lot of us are quite addicted to being busy. Either we disguise it as a problem, and sometimes we really mean it as a boast. I'm so very busy and important. Right? It's kind of what we mean, often I'm so busy, don't have time, don't have time. Right? It's not even that we're trying to persuade others that we don't have time, it's more ourselves. Oh yes, oh yes, I'm very busy and important. I have a friend with whom we, we joke like that. When one of us is expressing some kind of urgency or difficulty, the other reminds the other, yes, I know, you're very busy and important. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, thank you. <laughs> contactful we are. So that's the, the one kind of difficult relationship with time, right? Feeling pressurized by not having enough time and then you know, leads to a certain kind of agitation. But then we actually have a difficult relationship with time in the other direction. Right? When we're not busy, then what happens? Bored. 
bored and boredom becomes restless and then restless is another kind of fractious relationship with time oh god I've got too much time on my hands when we're busy we long if only I had some more time as if if we really had time we would just sort of zone out and enjoy it zen out and enjoy it but actually when we have time we immediately start thinking how to fill it contactfulness presence in that is a way in which we actually change our relationship with time the clock still moves at the same speed but the, the, when the relationship with time changes the sense of time changes the more you slow down ironically the more time you have the example I often give is around making a cup of tea especially in this country, right? We spend our time doing, making tea. Right? And you notice, we're often doing things, right? If you're in an uncontactful way, not grounded here, doing things basically faster than we need to do them. And making tea is a good point, a good example. You can be trying to make tea fast. But actually tea just takes the time that it takes. Right. The kettle takes the time that it takes. But the relationship with time is very different. Right? Between sort of tea, 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 come on, tea. Right? Or actually just, you know, if you're not trying to rush the kettle. Right? Tea making can feel like a, very, a spacious process. Oh, two minutes. Just standing, listening, waiting, smelling, sensing, and then, oh, kettle's boiled. Contactfulness changes the relationship with time. Not even, I mean, we can have the sense of actually having more time, of things going more slowly. In other words, when mind slows down and gets simpler, there's more space for processing. You may have noticed that here. Sometimes somebody was speaking about just that end point between breaths. Who knows how many seconds that lasts for? But a lot of time can be in that moment between breaths. A lot can happen. Worlds can arise and pass. Actually, when you get really, really contactful, it's not even that time, it's not even about time speeding up or slowing down. It's that time actually stops passing. You might even have the clear, clear sense of, oh, time doesn't pass. Or t- at least time needn't pass. Really just contactful with experience. In other words, when we're really present, time, rather than passing, we often talk about now, especially meditation, be here, or be here now, be here now, be here now. We think of now as some tiny little infinitesimal balanced dot between a lot of past and a lot of present, uh, no, sorry, a lot of future. Right? That's not what presence is. Presence isn't balanced between past and future. 
presence includes all of time and all of space and all of dimensions of reality. You don't need to look out for all of that right, all at once. But when we're really present, maybe you've had a, even a little taste or maybe a very clear taste of this. Right? When we're really present, time either dissolves or time expands. It doesn't pass. So I don't want to try to convince you of that, but most of us have a difficult relationship with time. The more contactful you are, the, the freer one is around time. And that, the, the, the implications or the dimensions of that freeness can, uh, can be unimaginable. An unimaginably free relationship with time. So, be contactful, friends. Practice being contactful. And quality of curiosity, willingness to explore. That's what curiosity really means, the willingness to explore, which of course involves then the willingness to not know. And that's, that's unfamiliar territory for a lot of us. We're encouraged a lot to know. So we try to know, or we believe that we know, we tell each other that we know, or we worry about not knowing. Except that knowing is a very, knowing is a very narrow place. I know that. Like just tending to breathing. Oh yeah, I know what breathing is. Well then, there's not much possibility, right? And sometimes, and then we get a lot of messages around us that we ought to know. And then we, we converse with each other. And other people sound like they know, look like they know, and we think we ought to belong to that club, really. But mostly people are just doing a good job of appearing as if they know. I was thinking about this before, it reminded me of this lovely poem by R.D. Lang, Scottish Psychology. It's called, I didn't know what the title was, but the title is, of course, is Knots. He says, there's something I don't know that I'm supposed to know. I don't know what it is I don't know, and yet I'm supposed to know. And I feel I look stupid if I seem both not to know it and not to know what it is I don't know. Therefore, I pretend to know it. That is nerve-wracking, since I don't know what I must pretend to know. Therefore, I pretend to know everything. <laughs> I feel you know what I'm supposed to know, but you can't tell me what it is because you don't know what I don't know what it is. You don't know that I don't know what it is. You may know what I don't know, but not that I don't know it. And I can't tell you, so you will have to tell me everything. <laughs> so, Dharma world, in the Buddhist tradition, there's a lot of uh, encouragement towards not knowing, unknowing. But it, as I say, it's, it's, it doesn't go along with our cultural currency. Encouraged to know, encouraged to speak up, encouraged to be authoritative. We look around us and imagine that our other people are authoritative. 
in some way. And it's interesting when we when we just extend our curiosity, particularly. I mean, again, in in meditation, right? We've been doing that this week, exploring, finding out, feeling into, putting aside our ideas of what's happening in order to actually taste and explore what's happening. But equally, that quality of curiosity actually in hanging out with others in the relational world, you know. Easily we can feel somehow, um, well, what happens? Just think for yourself, what happens when you feel like you don't know? So something we feel we should know and we don't know it, the simplest, easiest, freest thing is just to ask. But it's astonishing how often one might feel unable to ask, but one might feel there's something I should know and I need to kind of pretend I know it. Into painful knots with trying to know, or with think actually believing we know, which shuts us down, or for blaming or shaming ourselves for not knowing. What would it be like to put aside that world and be just willing to kind of listen to what's happening? feel into what's happening, find out what's happening. And particularly in this human realm, which you can feel like a competition of knowing who's, who's right. Obviously it's me. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and we kind of, you know, kind of meet each other across the battleground of who's right and wrong. There's very little opportunity to find anything out when we think we're right, or when we think we know, or when we think we should know, or when we're so busy blaming ourselves for not knowing that we can't listen. So what kind of opportunity might there be for that sort of curiosity in, in our relational life? Find out, you know, when you're speaking with someone, to actually be curious about the person curious in a way that's not just trying to sort of pin them down, not trying to decide, oh, they're that kind of person, right? not trying to put them in a box, but that's willing to find out, that's curious. Curious not just about what they're saying, but curious about how they're saying it. Curious about what might be unsaid, what they're saying. Curious about what they're expressing that's not in the words. There's a lot we can find out about ourselves and about each other, right, in that quality of listening. Maybe you notice that while you're here, sometimes in the groups, on the meetings, right, the way in which something might be shared or asked about in the hall, and oh, right, how interesting the way one person's um, question or curiosity we find is our own. The way our own... Um, the way our own experience is mirrored and, and uh, referenced in different ways, different places. Gail and I have been speaking a little bit about the meetings we've been having it with you. And just the, the kind of the, the preciousness of just a space of curiosity. 
And sometimes what those meetings, whether in the small groups or whether meeting one-to-one, it's often what those meetings most essentially are, or it's, it's where they can most come alive, right? When we're just meeting in a space of curiosity. What is this? What's happening here? What's, 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 what's it like, this being human? You might, you might really ask yourself of that, just as you sit here. We've got a bunch of ready answers on sitting here in Guy House. Martin must be at least two-thirds of the way through. It's <laughs> <laughs> a long way our curiosity can go. More a natural way our curiosity can really serve us. A lot of benefit in being willing to put aside the what we think we know. And you see, and you see how polarized our um, our social world, political world, mediatized world is. Right, the the aggression and the suspicion and the demonization. Those are, in many ways, a lot of the basis of that is that kind of you know, rigid, arrogant, toxic certainty. We're right. And then the incapacity, it doesn't matter which side of the political spectrum or of the, 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 the social issue that's being debated, right? the incapacity to listen to the other, the incapacity to consider the other. We need curiosity to save us from the tyranny we wreak on each other, even if it's just the tyranny of our own uh, uh, moral superiority or rightness. And then we have this quality of care, capacity to allow, make room for, to love. And we all have a well-developed capacity to care. You couldn't be here otherwise. Right? And you may have been exposed to you know, some of your own harshness or, or, or struggle in many ways. It's one of the things that touches me very much in retreats. I'm just sitting with you and sitting with you and I open my eyes and, oh, you're still here. <laughs> no, I don't take that for granted, really. Anyway, you know, I know it's hard. It's hard. It's hard. Most of what's hard, you know, a house isn't too hard. Most of what's hard is like what happens here within well, the rest of guy house is all right, but this cushion, you know, <laughs> this can be hard place to be. And I think it's very helpful, it's important actually, even, even just to, if we're going to sustain this practice, to recognize one's capa- how developed that sense of care is, how much you care about your heart, about your mind, about your life, about how you show up in the world, that you're willing to come and spend these days doing this you know, beautiful thing in some ways, but also doing this hard work. 
this rather intense, sometimes rather bleak work of facing oneself. There's a lot of people that would run out of here on the first evening. And maybe you, maybe there's been one or two or several or many moments where you've been tempted to run out of here, but you don't even know where the bus stop is. (laughs) (laughs) Thank goodness there isn't a bus stop outside there. It's like what I often call is trusting the goodness of your practice, recognizing the goodness of your practice. There's a huge amount of of a very of emotional intelligence, right, of human goodness that makes you interested in this stuff, and then more than interested, willing to come and actually engage, and then capable of actually staying. And just seeing you let that in for yourself. Some of us, it's the hardest thing. We know we, we, we're very capable of caring, some of us, but it's very hard to let in the fact that, oh yeah, I care. I care. And I can care. And it's good that I care. And it, we need to let in the fact that we care. And we need to feel the fact that we care so that our care can actually really grow and expand. Limitlessly expand. There's no limit to how much we can care. And then, you know, inevitably, as we as we look at that, we 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 see our own history that we were all cared for. Otherwise, again, we couldn't have made it to being more or less functional adults. And I think we all fall in that category. But and we were all cared for inevitably, we were all cared for imperfectly. Just inevitable. And our caregivers and parents or etc., well, you know, they were trying their best. And some of them might have done a pretty good best and some of them might have done a very poor best. And they were doing their best to care with whatever um, whatever anxieties and fears, defences or unresolved material that was going on or is going on for them. And we've inherited the, the residue of the in, imperfect caring. And we start to really generate the, the, the intention to care and we activate our care and we, get, uh, we, and we uh, cultivate care we also we come across that the, the bumpy places, and we see our the, the, our imperfect caring coming out in various ways. We see the way we can be impatient or intolerant or harsh or dismissive. But there's also a way we. We internalize the imperfect care that we receive, and therefore the strongest habit of our imperfect care is is the way it doesn't go outwards to others, but goes inward. The tendency for harshness or intolerance or dismissiveness, judgment, uh, etc., 
is is uh, it's tragic. Sometimes it's it's uh, you know it's painful when we start to see it. Sometimes it takes a long time to see it because it's so habituated. We don't see it as being harsh with ourselves. We see it as some kind of just we're just you know seeing it. It's just the way I am, the way it is. And then we start to notice maybe, wow, that's incredibly harsh with ourselves. So again, the example I often give just in terms of meditation. Imagine if at the end of the sitting you turned to somebody near to you and said, you don't seem very mindful. Your mind looks like it's all over the place. Your posture is dreadful. I don't know why you bother coming to And yet, does that not sound like somewhat <laughs> a familiar discourse? Right? You wouldn't dream of you know, when we start speaking tomorrow. <laughs> it's just not what you're going to be saying to each other over breakfast. And yet, how, how habituated we can be to that kind of inner discourse. It, 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 it's, it's funny, except it's also it's it's, it's tragic. And you know, turning in the direction of that care, you know, when we start is we start to kind of work with that material, digest that material, dissolve that material, see through that material, and there's there's a there's a lot to that whole piece. Actually, Gail and I have both done a lot of work with that particular sort of structure, sometimes called the inner critic or uh, the superego, and Buddhism is referred to as Mara. And I have a a month-long online course specifically around doing a lot of that work. I'll put a link up to it tomorrow. What I was... Struck. I remember somebody asking one of my teachers once, "What the essence of?" Um, I actually, I can't remember what the question was, but I just remember the answer. Right? And the part of the answer was, he said, "I don't give myself a hard time about anything," and that was very impactful for me when I read it. I don't give myself a hard time about anything. What happens when you hear that? What happens if you try that on for size? I don't give myself a hard time about anything. Really, what happens? Maybe, it might be that what happens is that that feels very liberating and spacious. Or it may not. It may be, oh my God, imagine if I didn't give myself a hard time for anything. Imagine what I might let out of the cage. It's part of what keeps us giving ourselves a hard time is there's some belief that we're sort of keeping ourselves in check, that we're managing the monster that we fear we might otherwise be. But when we actually really start to, to really care for this one, for this inner life, for this heart, this mind, we start to actually let in our own uh, neurosis, our own 
Shorthand, I often say, need, needy, greedy, lazy, crazy. That's a lot of what I find. Mm-hmm. Neediness, greediness, laziness, craziness. Right. Oh, we don't want, we don't want any of that. Yeah, we want wisdom, <laughs> compassion, <laughs> peace. But this isn't really a practice of wisdom and compassion, love and peace. Those things, we don't really need to practice those things. Those things are actually the natural fruits. Buddha talks about a lot, actually, not about wisdom and compassion. You don't hear much about wisdom and compassion in the texts. What you hear a lot about is greed, hatred, and delusion. But we don't want to put that on the poster. <laughs> Come to Gaia House for a week of <laughs> greed, hatred, and delusion. But that's actually where our practice is, right? Being willing to meet, explore, and care for. We start to realize we care for that. It's okay. It's normal. It's human. Oh, neediness, greediness, animosity, ill will, pettiness, judgment. Oh, here it is. Here it is. And that sense, actually, that it can all be cared for. There's no wrong experience. There is no thought that shouldn't be thought. There is no feeling that shouldn't arise. There is no impulse one cannot uh, care for. There's plenty of ways we we wouldn't want to act that stuff out. But actually, allowing it and caring for it is the best protection against acting it out. Otherwise, we're, we're in this kind of mutually supportive polarity of on the one hand trying to trying to push it down and the, on the other hand compelled towards acting it out in various ways. And therefore our neediness or greediness or laziness or craziness or pettiness or jealousy or whatever it is, you know, gets these kind of like um, gets this strange underground life in us. What would it really be like to not give oneself a hard time about anything? I'm still very capable of remorse, capable of recognizing, oh, that wasn't so helpful, that thing I said. Oh, that was a little insensitive, that thing I did. Oh, that was really, I really need to look out for that. I need to pay attention to that. I don't want to do that again. But that's different. One's able to reflect on one's speech or one's action, one's behaviour, one's intentions. But actually there's only really room to reflect like that if you're not giving yourself a hard time. If you're busy berating yourself, judging yourself, beating yourself up for that, there's no room left to reflect on it, to explore it, to understand it, to see how one could do it differently. What might it be like to care that radically, that freely, that fully? And then, when we notice, wow, what the stuff that can arise in this mind, when we notice how needy, greedy, lazy, crazy, petty uh, this mind can be, 
we somehow don't mind that so much in others. We can, we can relate, we can identify, we can uh, actually empathize. Whatever we see playing out around us, and we can see, you know, terrible acts of cruelty and bigotry and oppression and uh, violence playing out in the world around us. And that might be happening on a scale that's very, very, very far away in terms of how it's being playing out in the world. But we can actually see the same seeds here. Oh, yeah, I can be, I can produce mean-spirited thoughts. I can produce aggressive thoughts. I can produce antagonistic thoughts. I can produce judgmental thoughts. And I can see the mind that wants to believe those thoughts, that wants to get caught in those thoughts. And I can feel how painful that is. How painful must it be then to be so caught up in that stuff that it, it, you know, it becomes to life as violence, as prejudice, etc., etc. What might it be like to care as we move through the world? to care for ourselves, to care for the ones we meet, to care for those who are oppressed, to care for those who oppress. What might it be like to be real, to be a bit more contactful, a bit more curious, a bit more caring? What might it be like to be infinitely more contactful, infinitely more curious, infinitely more caring. Because these are infinite dimensions of being human. We have an infinite capacity to be here, contactful, sensitive, awake, present. An infinite capacity to be curious, to not know, to explore, to understand, and an infinite capacity to be touched by life in all its beauty and its tragedy, an infinite capacity to respond to life with this vast human heart. That's the promise and the real possibility of this practice. That's what we're here for. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.